Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 306. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 306 you're listening to. My guest today is Nashville-based mastering engineer Daniel Bacigalupi. Daniel is a member of the team over at Infrasonic Mastering that includes Pete Lyman, Dave Gardner, and Piper Payne, all who have been guests here on WCA. We're going to get into Daniel's journey to Nashville and into mastering here shortly. So Daniel Bacigalupi coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about participation. So let's face it, COVID definitely has turned our world upside down. And for uh, some of us, work has carried on, for the most part, uninterrupted. And for others, it's been interrupted greatly. Some of you might have a tendency to get depressed, pull back from even trying to get work because you feel like you've hit a wall. And you might also have uh, pulled back from any kind of collaboration or online events or participation in this case of online events and networking and all that business. You know, it's easy to understand if you if you do hit a wall and you're frustrated, you might just say, ah, screw it. I'm just gonna sit around and watch, you know, television shows all day, right? I would totally understand if that was the case. And even if you're not in that position where you feel like just sitting around watching TV and letting the days pass, you may lose interest in some of these things I've mentioned because you're stuck at home and you're not forced to go out and you're not forced to do much. But, you know, we as audio people, I think at our core, whether we realize it or not, are entrepreneurs and self-starters. So this is me appealing to the self-starter part of you. I think it's really important to participate at the very least in some of these online events that are taking place within our audio world. Do they get your work? Mm, That's debatable, probably not because you're showing up and doing something that other audio people are showing up to do. But this aspect of it is not really geared towards getting work. It's more about staying involved, staying present, staying visible. Andrew Sheps talked about in my 300th episode about staying visible and how that was important to him. Now, not all of us are going to be in the presenter position that Andrew is in, as he's referring to. Some of you are, but some of you are not. Most of you are gonna be in the spectator position. And there's nothing wrong with being in the spectator position because here's what that brings to you. When you show up to online AES events, NAM events, Recording Academy events, or just mastermind calls or any kind of social event that is connected to audio, when you do that, you connect with like-minded people who might pull you out of the funk that you may be in. And like I mentioned in my last episode with the beginner's mindset, even if you show up to an event online that has something to do with something you already know a lot about, it's good to get in there and participate and possibly learn something new or a new perspective. The great thing about these online events is they can pull you out of the doldrums. They can spur you on to say, you know what? I do love this thing that we do called audio. And yes, I've been dealt a blow, but I need to get back up and get back on the horse. It can be therapeutic. It can be cathartic. To interact with our peers really is a powerful thing. The competitive part of you might be spurred on to get off your ass. And you know me, I'm not really a great fan of social media in general, but if you're on social media, try to use that time for not only networking with potential clients, but also networking with your fellow audio peers. Because by staying present in the game, People know you're there. You might get recommended for something because let's face it, some of us get gigs offered to us that A, we don't want to do. That's one discussion. But B, we may not be qualified to do it. You know, as a person who primarily deals in rock and and Americana and jazz, I typically do not take on hip hop projects. So if I get offered a hip hop project and I know one of my fellow audio professionals who's needing work is far better at that, then I'm certainly gonna refer that person. But it's like a business. You can't just set up the business and not advertise, right? You've gotta let people know that you're out there, that you're working on stuff and thinking about stuff and wanna discuss stuff. It's about participation. 
You just cannot sit back and expect the phone to ring, folks. You cannot get referrals. You, you cannot become a hermit. You just got to get out there and participate. Yeah, you can't get out of your house too much these days and go do much, but you can get on a computer and you can improve your social media presence uh, from a professional perspective. You don't have to get on there and do the doom scrolling thing and get in political arguments on Facebook, but you can get on there and improve your LinkedIn profile. You can post articles or uh, even share articles on things that are important to you in the world of audio. Improving your professional presence, I think, is what this all boils down to. And showing up, being there. It's a little bit of a ramble, I understand, so you'll have to excuse it, but I'm just, I'm super passionate about it and I really want you all to like get out there and get to work. Network, not just for the purpose of getting work, but network for the purpose of interacting with your peers. That's my rant. Thanks for listening and good luck to you. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Daniel Bacigalupi, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm super happy to be here. And physically, you're in Nashville, and you are at Infrasonic? That is correct. Here in Green Hills in Nashville, we have a studio in the same building as Reed Shippen and Robot Lemon, which is super fun to have so much music getting made in the same place. And yeah, Pete Lyman, Piper Payne, Ray Lynn Janicki, and I are all working out of this studio. So it's a lot of fun. So let's talk about you. What do you call yourself? Do you produce? Do you engineer? Do you mix? Or do you consider yourself a straight-up mastering engineer? I think at this point, I am a straight-up mastering engineer, and that has always been my sort of goal ever since starting this whole journey so many years ago. 
I have definitely dipped my toe into a few things, but almost all from the assisting side. So I've been fortunate enough to get to assist mastering engineers, tracking engineers, and mixing engineers, but have only ever really done mastering as my own medium of recording, let's say, or of audio production. Where did you grow up? I am from a very small town in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. It's a town called Pine City. It's accurate because there are definitely more pines than people there. And I kind of started off not really being particularly interested in music when I was a little kid. I have a very musical family. My dad was the band director of our high school and of our elementary school. And my mom is a really great flautist and they did music together at our church. There was always a lot of music in my home. They were always rehearsing and practicing and making lots of music, but we weren't really listening to a lot of pop music or contemporary music. It was definitely more from a making it side. And my dad also repaired band instruments and tuned pianos for lots of people in the area. He was pretty much the only piano tuner, I think, in that part of Minnesota. So I got to go around and do that. I've sat in rooms and listened to the same note on a piano get hit over and over again. And I think that sort of when I was younger got me into training my ear a little bit and got me into really listening and focusing on sounds. And so once I was about 12 years old, I discovered Nirvana's Nevermind. It just impacted me in this profound way that made me want to reach for a guitar as fast as possible and learn how to play guitar. And from there, my dad had also plays guitar. He's played a lot of like folk and acoustic guitar, but also was getting into electric jazz guitar. So I started borrowing his electric guitar and playing around with pedals and trying to emulate all the sounds I was hearing on the radio. And so I started getting more into Metallica, Tool, and new Metal era as well at that time. It was definitely like my sort of influence into what I wanted to make sound-wise. My dad could see that I had this transformation at around 12. He was very obviously musically involved himself, and he saw me wanting to record things. We had an old Tascam Porta Studio, a little four-track cassette recorder at the time. And so we were messing with that, but it wasn't quite giving us what we wanted. My father went out and purchased a Mackie 16-channel mixer and a Motu 828 Firewire and Digital Performer, I think, 3. And my start was recording myself playing guitars. I had a friend who was a drummer. We put together a little band. And I just started from about 14 years old until I graduated from high school. I would sit at home and constantly record ourselves, try and mix it, try and listen to it compared to other things. It never sounded right. Striving for that sound of a commercial professional recording became my one sole purpose in life from about 14 years and on. And so I would <laughs> spend all day doing school and sports and things like that. And then all night until four in the morning or so in our little home studio, just trying to make my band sound like Pantera. <laughs> <laughs> and I never got there. You know, it's funny. I could never quite satisfy myself. I started to get to that point where you have to decide what you want to do with your life. My parents have been incredibly supportive and helpful, and they are just awesome for my sort of growth in this. And my dad famously would always say, all you have to do in life is find something you love to do and then find someone who will pay you to do it. And I really took that to heart and I was like, I want to make professional audio. And uh, I knew I wanted to get an actual music degree as well. I didn't want to do like a recording fast track or like, you know, a, a, something that was specific to recording. I really wanted an undergraduate degree just for my own personal, um, I don't know, pride or something. And what was the name of the college you, that you ultimately chose? I ended up going to Ithaca College in upstate New York, and it ended up being my only option for a very strange reason. It's like February of my senior year of high school. My parents and I go to Ithaca. It's the day before for my audition. Trombone was my instrument. I guess I never said that. And we have a meeting with the dean of the music school and with some of the like professors there. And they do the whole walkthrough and, and show you around. And I met some of the other kids and got to hear some of the other kids playing and things. And I was like, I am never getting into this school. There's just no hope. I've just given up at that point of even attending because I just did not feel I was on the same level as all of these other kids who were around me. So the day before my audition, I decide I should probably warm up a little bit and I play for about an hour. And at Ithaca College, the practice rooms are in the basement. So I'm in the lower level of Ithaca College, practice for about an hour, and I go back to meet my parents who are on the second floor. And as I'm walking, I start feeling something crawling around inside of my body. It feels like a snake has started wandering around in my insides. 
I sit down next to my mom and I look at her and I say, something is really wrong with me. And she looks at me and I'm pale as a ghost and apparently I'm drenched in sweat. Hmm. And so she kind of panics, which makes me panic. And I stand up and all of a sudden my vision starts caving in from the sides with white and my hearing starts becoming a single tone. It was like a like right through my head. And I could only really see what was right in front of me. And I could see another bench that I needed to get to. I could just tell I needed to get to this bench or I was going to pass out. So I get to the bench. It's right outside the dean's office, it turns out. So he sees this kid just like falling over on this bench. And so I get there and then my hearing comes back once I sit down and my vision comes back. But it feels like I have a knife stabbed in my chest at this point, like right below my shoulder. Left or right shoulder? Left shoulder. I would have gotten panicky at that point. Yeah. So did everyone at the school. So I got two ambulances and a couple fire trucks that came by and they hooked me up to the defibrillator, which was really exciting. And it didn't shock me. So it didn't sense that I was having any sort of heart ventricular fibrillation or anything like that. And so the paramedics didn't know what was going on. All of my vitals were like pretty normal. And so then it became like, maybe it's just performance anxiety, but they take me to the hospital and lo and behold, my left lung had just randomly partially collapsed which is crazy. It's called a spontaneous pneumothorax and it happens to like thin-chested guys actually somewhat regularly, which is a little terrifying. That was what had happened. And so the snake that you feel is your body's a vacuum. So the air that escaped from my lungs was just moving all of my organs around. And that was what that feeling of the snake was. So needless to say... I couldn't audition. (laughs) To make a long story short, I end up getting a chest tube. What they do is it's just like the movies. When you're in a car accident and they stab you to relieve the pressure in your chest and let your lungs reinflate, they do that in a much more controlled way if you haven't been in a terrible accident. So I had a, a chest tube coming out of my chest and I was not allowed to play trombone for, I think it was like a few months at least. I never got to audition at Ithaca that day. And was still able, though, to do my interview for the recording program. So they had an audition for your instrument plus an interview for the actual recording side of things. I was able to do that with the chest tube in, which I think they saw a lot of spirit in or whatever. I think that was helpful for me. But yeah, so we left Ithaca after my interview, got back home. I didn't really know what I was going to do because... All of my audition days fell within this time frame that I wasn't allowed to play trombone. And so I didn't know what the next step was. Ithaca had sent me a letter saying, we're really sorry that this happened, but unfortunately we don't let videotaped or recorded auditions. It has to be in person. Sorry, too bad, so sad. I started looking at other schools, like a a small school in Minnesota that didn't require an audition that I could go to for some sort of like music production kind of stuff. And I was pretty bummed out, uh, not going to lie. And I then got another letter from Ithaca a couple weeks later that said, you are actually one of the top recording interviews, so we're going to let you make a videotape and we need it by this day. A videotape of what? A videotape audition of me playing trombone, which is what they wouldn't let me submit originally. So they wanted you for the recording program, but to get in, you actually had to do a trombone audition tape. Yes, yes. The recording program at Ithaca is tied to the music school. It's more of a performance degree with an emphasis on recording than it is the other way around. That was really the most important part. There's lots of people who pass the interviews, apparently, for the recording program who do not pass the music instrument audition. You have to pass both. So they let me send in a videotape, which was a lot of fun to make. I think there was like a three-day window from when the doctor said I could play trombone again into when they needed this tape. So I haven't played for months, and now, cold, I have to make this audition tape. And I send it in, and luckily, somehow made it in. But I really, truly, honestly believe that if my lung didn't collapse, we would not be having this conversation right now and I would not have gotten in at all. So, yeah. Fate stepped in. It did. It absolutely did. Did you graduate from the program? Yes. So I was able to go to Ithaca. The program actually went through a big transformation while I was there. We had a big overhaul between my junior and senior year of who was the professor. So at the time, there had been a couple of guys running the program who were doing a great job, but they didn't have a ton of experience in sort of like the pop and rock and sort of commercial music world. It was very classical recording based. So it was a lot of stereo mic placements and super clean digital recording and whatnot. And we realized that we didn't really want that in the program. What we really wanted to focus on was getting us jobs in commercial studios, et cetera, afterwards. And so there was a local engineer who is from Ithaca and his studio is there named Alex Perialis, who is just an amazing engineer. He worked in the 80s and 90s mostly with a lot of different metal projects, things from like, oh boy, Anthrax, uh, Stormtroopers of Death, 
things like that. It was really cool. He's a really fun mentor. And so we begged him to come be the professor at the college, which through a very crazy roundabout story, he ended up doing. Alex became sort of my mentor at Ithaca. He was very well connected with everybody in the industry. And that's how we get on to my next stages. I just absolutely loved working with him. Absolutely loved the things he had to teach me. And it was fun to be with someone who actually worked on a lot of projects of artists that I actually listened to and music that I actually like enjoyed, which was super fun. What are some of the key takeaways that you learned from him? That's a really good question because it was everything. Let's say from a, a career perspective, did he impart any advice to you that set you on, on a good path? Yeah, I would say mostly what he set for me was a really good example. Being able to watch how he set up sessions, how he dealt with clients. So I actually went with him and did some remote recordings a few times and then worked out of his studio a couple times to Pyramid Sound there, which is a really cool facility. And he showed me what an actual commercial studio really looks like. You don't get that in a school environment. You don't really realize what it's like in an actual commercial studio. There's no real way to describe the difference other than it's different to me. But yeah, that side of things. And then also the business side of things and that it's important to build for your time because when you're young and in school, you just want to make music. Like it's still super fun and it's still super fun for me now. But at the time, you're just so excited to be doing it. You aren't even thinking about monetizing it. So I think seeing him and he and his wife work together and ran the studio and that was a really good bit of education as well. But also he was really good at, we did a lot of mic shootouts. He used to let us go and like set up all the microphones in the studio and just try them on different instruments and play different things with them. And I definitely learned a ton about different mic types, the way ribbons sound, the way tube microphones sound, things like that, that were really important too. Once you left the program, where did you go? While I was still in the program, this would have been my the summer before my senior year, you had to do an internship. And Alex happened to be really longtime friends with Tom Coyne at Sterling Sound. And I had expressed a little bit of an interest in mastering to Alex because I felt like it was a really good blend of some of my strengths, which I felt were like listening to recordings as a whole has always been sort of my kind of way that I thought about it. I wasn't as big into individual like elements as much. The other thing I really liked at the time was that it seemed like mastering was something you couldn't do in your bedroom yet, whereas I had been recording now basically in my bedroom for my whole existence. And so I felt like mastering actually had some longevity in it as a career at the time. I thought that it was going to be one of those things you just wouldn't be able to replace as easily without having a giant studio. Turns out I was very wrong because now AI is coming for my job every day. But that was kind of my motivation. So Alex was really good friends with Tom Coyne, and we had to do an internship as part of the program. And Alex called up Tom, and Tom was like, we've had some interns, not really anything too formal, though. But tell you what, we'll take them on. So I went to New York and spent the summer of 2007 living in New York City and interning for Tom Coyne at Sterling, which really, they didn't really know what to do with me. So I kind of just got to float around to people's rooms, watch what they were doing, got put on some simple tasks. One thing I used to do was make clean versions of hip hop songs by mm -hmm. editing in the instrumental. So I'd listen through for wherever there was the naughty word and I would edit in the instrumental there. So it was really fun being a part of that environment. Sterling, this was when they were in their Chelsea facility and I was just blown away. Like I was just excited to walk through the doors every single day. Was this paid or unpaid? Unpaid. It has to be unpaid for the school internship. I absolutely fell in love with mastering at that point because there's a lot out there about mastering and a lot of it is pretty inaccurate. This was the first time I got to watch professional engineers doing it the way that they, and, and they were super nice, honestly. Like Greg Kelby used to let me sit in his room and he would explain things to me. He'd let me sit in AB things. Chris Athens was super nice. Chris Geringer was super nice. Honestly, all of them were just fantastic. Oh, and it was also really cool because when I was there, George Marino was still mastering there too. It was like the end of his career. He was working part-time out of his room with Ryan Smith, but George Marino mastered like all of my favorite records. So that was really fun. And he let me sit in with him, which was just mm. so cool. So I kind of had this like starstruck beginning with all of this and decided mastering is what I want to do. So I go back to Ithaca. I tell Alex, got to do mastering. He's like, funny enough, I have maybe an internship lined up for you. Not school real sponsored, but once you graduate, Georgetown Masters in Nashville, Tennessee is looking for an intern. Andrew Mendelson, the chief engineer there, is also an Ithaca College grad. So it's crazy how we all found each other. He actually started 
what became the program that I did. Like when he was there, it didn't exist as an audio recording program. He sort of built it on his own. He and another professor would steal gear from the communication school and set up their own little recording studio in the music school. It was really fun to have that connection coming to Nashville and meeting Andrew for the first time. We actually went to Bonnaroo together like the first day I met him, which was super fun. And I just, looking back on it, I have to smile because it was just such a fun time. So I interned at Georgetown for a couple months and then got lucky enough they were looking for someone to take over an assistant position. So I started assisting there in 2008 and did for six and a half years. So you transitioned from Ithaca in New York down to Nashville, Tennessee. How are you surviving financially? That was tricky. I moved to Nashville with $600 in my pocket and my parents through a convoluted family friend had this basement apartment that was available. I think the rent for me was only like $325 a month. Yeah, I remember this 2008, so it's before the giant Nashville explosion, or it's right on the cusp of the Nashville explosion. So you could still find a cheap apartment in a basement still. But I had no air conditioning, I had no heat, I had no cable access or anything like that. So I was stealing Wi-Fi from the neighbors and living on my $600 for as long as I could. And luckily, I'm pretty good at being frugal and was able to survive the few months basically on that and with a little bit more help from my parents who really wanted me to focus on the internship and not be burdened with work. And again, that's why they're just like my absolute best supporters, honestly, with all of this. Was able to go to the point where I got hired, which was like, I think, two and a half months after I had started interning. From that point, then I was able to move out of that basement and get an actual apartment. Luckily, was able to survive just doing that almost right away, which is a pretty rare story and a pretty fortunate one. Were you being paid on a salary or were you being paid hourly? A salary plus some bonus and incentives, but it was consistent and we were actual payroll employees. It was very much like an actual job. It did not feel like a gig. It was very consistent hours, not necessarily great hours, like very long hours, but at least consistent with consistent paychecks. So that actually was not a huge burden at the time. Was there a big cultural awakening for you coming from New York to Tennessee? Not really. Because I grew up in such a small town in Minnesota, it was a town of like 3,000 people with no other cities within 15, 20 miles in any direction. Nashville felt like this fun, happy medium between where I grew up and New York. New York was definitely crazy. I felt like someone was always watching me and I felt <laughs> like I felt like I was just never alone, which was comforting at times, but overall not how I want to live. And Nashville was like, oh, here's a city with perks, like all the city perks that I wasn't used to in small town Minnesota. But at an affordable rate and with really cool people in a cool community. Nashville's engineers and artists are all super supportive of each other. That was something I wasn't expecting. I thought it would be much more like cutthroat and yeah, everyone's fighting for the same pie, but I found Nashville to be actually really comforting and, and supportive when I got here. How long did you stay at that current position? It morphed from where it started. I started just like assisting Andrew day to day, which was documenting settings as he was mastering things. It was printing the actual masters themselves, setting up the sessions for him before he got started, and then doing like the quality checks, final listens, things like that. And that was pretty much exclusively what I did at first. And that was for maybe two or three years of that. And then slowly started doing my own mastering in that time too. And it started off with like maybe a project a month, a song a month, and then it slowly got busier and busier. So I would say I was splitting my time pretty hard between my own sessions and assisting Andrew. And then at a certain point, the person who had been doing the studio management left and I moved into that position. I became in charge of the booking, the billing, basically the accounting of the place and all of the artist client interactions with us, things like that. That was a big change for me and definitely skills I was not, I did not have at the time. I was not particularly good at that kind of, I don't know, almost like bookkeeping stuff. Did you become good at that? I had to. <laughs> yeah, it was like being thrown in the deep end and it was definitely a sink or swim kind of scenario. I got really good at it. Lots of tricks and things that I had to teach myself, but it ended up working out and it also ended up burning me out. And so at a certain point, about six and a half years in, I've been doing enough of my own sessions that I felt like I wasn't really able to give them the time they needed because I was spending so much time doing the other things in the studio that were required of me. And I just kind of felt like I had 
done my time there and it was time to do something else. I knew I wanted to be a mastering engineer specifically, but there wasn't really a ton of opportunity for that from any sort of assisting point. There wasn't any studio looking necessarily for an assistant. So I talked to Reed Shippen. He was also looking for an assistant, it turned out. And so I started assisting Reed Shippen full-time for mixing. Then I slowly built my own mastering rig while assisting him. And it actually, for, for a long time, was just in the corner of Reed's mixing room. And so I'd come in like early in the morning or late at night and like slide over my mastering rig and plug in a few AES cables. And now I had all of Reed's monitoring, but with all of my gear. And so I started mastering in his room on my own a little bit and then started renting a room in the house, the room I'm in right now, actually. So then I started renting my own space once I started having enough clients and was definitely like full-time mix assistant and full-time mastering engineer as well. Did that for four years. Some of the best experiences I had were, were doing that. One thing about being a mastering engineer is you're stuck in the same room every day in the same speakers and whatnot. But when you get with someone like Reed, we did a recording session in El Paso, Texas. We did a recording session in Telluride, Colorado, and we mixed a whole album in Key West. And that experience was super awesome and super fun. And while I loved it, I realized that going forward now, as I like started turning 30 and get a little older and just gotten married, I actually started to envy the schedule of the mastering again and really wanted <laughs> to focus on that really much more as like my full-time job. Was the travel starting to become maybe too much? It wasn't so much the travel was too much. It was hard to be on such an inconsistent schedule. Mm. Reed is mixes every day in his room, but like some of these other things would just pop up out of nowhere and would just require very large chunks of time. And I also didn't really have any recording or mixing chops. I was really good at assisting it because it was like I done a lot of work assisting lots of people. So I was good at those aspects of it, but definitely never really got into wanting to mix or record on my own and still always felt like my best role was as a mastering engineer. So it was always the focus. I don't even know that there was any specific thing. It was more just like I needed a change from Georgetown. Reed provided a really great breath of fresh air. And then that got me motivated again to get back to full-time mastering. While I was working out of this room and assisting Reed, Pete Lyman from Infrasonic Mastering moved to town and was looking for a space. And he got connected to Reed and we started talking about him moving into the room next door, also in this same house. At the time, there was no like talk of me joining Infrasonic or anything like that. I had just met Pete. I knew of him from seeing him on records and whatnot, but had never met him. And we just got to talking and really just hit it off. And one day he was like, you should just come work for Infrasonic. And from then on, it's just been never looked back. That was in like 2018. And now I am just full-time Infrasonic mastering engineer and absolutely love it. You could have stayed solo and freelance. Yes. What comes with joining Infrasonic? And do you have to bill a certain amount of hours? You know, is it essentially like a small law firm? The motivation for not being on my own was that I'm self-admitted not the best networker, not the best at selling myself. Like all of us who do this, we're all kind of have a weird lack of confidence. But especially from my time at Georgetown, I realized the benefit of having an established place with a reputation. If a client came to Georgetown and said, we only have... X number of dollars, and it was outside of Andrew's budget, he could say, Dan could do this for you. And there's just that extra level of confidence in the client who has been told by someone they respect, like, oh, this other person will do a great job for you as well. And I think that I really love to learn. I seek out knowledge like all the time. And learning from other engineers has always, I think, been the best way to get some new tricks, get some new, like even just fresh air for your brain almost. So I really enjoyed working with people who thought outside the box. And I'm very good at like taking a little bit from everybody that I've assisted and worked with and kind of building that into my own thing. And I think that would have been harder to do if I was completely on my own. I think it's A, harder to get the credibility, but B, harder to be open-minded about things. I felt like I was getting in a little bit of a rut on my own. And I definitely feed off the energy of having other people in the studio working with me. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What are some things that Pete brought to the table? Because Pete came from California, shows up in Nashville. He's probably got a different perspective on not only the practice of mastering, but also business and making a living and doing this. What are some of the things you learned from him? The one thing I learned more than anything is that it's possible to do this job and do this job very well and still have a life. It felt like with some of my previous gigs that part of being an engineer was just like you work 14 hours a day and you never have any time off and you can't really take any vacations. And that's just not how Pete runs his business. He always makes time for his family and his kids. And it gave me an incredible amount of confidence that that was possible to do, which I had been really worried about. And so that was honestly one thing that he definitely brought to the table with me. And also, I really liked the way he runs his business. I learned a whole new different way of billing. That's always a conversation people have. Do you bill per song? Do you bill per project? Is there flat rates? How do you do it? And the way we bill here is by the running time of your audio. So a five-minute song is not billed the same as a two-minute song, which actually makes a lot of sense because it just is a lot more involved if your song is longer from all aspects, from the QC to the actual mastering to the printing it. And I thought that was really a clever way to do it. So I, I gained that little bit of knowledge from him as well. But the most important thing that he changed in my world of mastering is he has a vinyl cutting lathe. All of a sudden now, where vinyl had always been this mysterious, I don't really know how it works, I send my files off at 24-bit and they end up on a record. Now I've been cutting records for a year now and that has been the coolest bit of knowledge that I've gained from this new gig and have absolutely loved that. And just learning, like working with something physical really helps you remember why you do the things the way you do, why there's like orders of events in gain staging and EQing and, and why records sound like they did back in the day versus now. And I think it's made me much more in tune with listening to music now that I do so much in the analog realm, which has been huge. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. How do you determine what you charge? Or do you all charge at Infrasonic on the same? Yeah, we have a sliding scale here where I could pick my own rate. Basically, I knew what Pete charged for his mastering. And so I knew I couldn't go with that. I'm not nearly as established as Pete Lyman. So I've got to go a little bit below that. But I had a feeling of what I was worth. I took my rates from Georgetown, which were set by Georgetown, and modified them. I thought that they were pretty reasonable and modified them to fit into this new structure. So I actually end up billing about the same. My rate is pretty similar, but at Georgetown, it was just done in a different way. I just kind of fell into it, honestly, and it's worked so far. But yeah, I'm slightly less expensive than Pete Lyman, and that is just right where I fit in. <laughs> do you all have the same gear or do you have a completely different setup than Pete? Yeah, that actually was kind of funny. We ended up with a lot of the same gear by accident just by us both picking it. So we both have the same consoles. We both work on Mesolec MTC-1s and we both really are into converters. Like we've done a lot of converter shootouts and we have a few, each of us, but like we both had a Head 192 we really liked. And so my setup is definitely my own creation that I came up with, but it actually is pretty similar as far as the gear to Pete's. Monitoring-wise, it's pretty different. I'm in a smaller room and definitely couldn't fit PMCs in here. Yeah, my whole philosophy with everything I've done in mastering has always been like, make it work, which is one of Reed's also philosophies. And one of the advantages too of being an assistant in a big studio is you just get to pick up a lot of things that are 
important that you don't learn in a textbook. Just like practicing every day in a very complicated studio, you just become really good at things like signal flow and you become really creative with ways to set up a monitoring thing, like setting up this interview, right? Where I'm recording into my DAW, listening to you and you're listening to me all with different setups, but it's all going through my one mastering console. So figuring out things like that have been hugely beneficial, like working with someone like Pete, but that was a huge part of starting out on my own was I wanted to pick all of the gear that I used and make it my sound, not try to mimic someone else's. You know, a lot of people in the world of audio have a struggle with, they can completely grasp the technical, the artistic elements of it, and especially get into the minutia of the audio, but they may struggle with the business aspect of it. Where do you fall in that? I am a weird combination of the two. I would say that my biggest strength is definitely in the technical audio side of things and in the actual work itself. But I've had to become good at the business side of things, mostly out of necessity. I definitely do not enjoy that side of it nearly as much. And as my clients will tell you, I'm notorious for sending out invoices like three weeks after we do the project because it's just not the part of it that I enjoy. And honestly, we've now have a studio manager that we've hired who's been with us for about a year. And that's been huge because that lets me take my mind off of the actual business side of things and the, the money making side of things and just focus on the music. But that's where my love is. I love talking about mastering processes and arguing about different clocks and sample rates and things. So yeah, that's definitely more my passion for sure. What makes you decide to buy a piece of gear? For me, I'm not particularly like gear obsessed. I really like gear, but for me, I have to hear it first is part one. Definitely like demoing gear first. And my sort of philosophy is different than a lot of mastering engineers in that I like to have a very clean chain where if I hit play with nothing happening on my chain, I don't want the audio to change much. I want to have the purest signal going through and then I want to add to that where I feel it needs different either subtractions or additions. And so when I pick gear, for me, it's almost always because that piece of gear does one specific thing that I really like and that a lot of recordings need. For example, I only have one compressor right now, and it's a Millennia TwinCom. And I don't even really use it for any compression, but it has a solid state and a tube side. And when I put it in the solid state side and engage it, it adds like low end energy. It's not like EQ, but it actually seems to make kicks kick a little harder and lets them get out of the way of bass guitars. And it just works on a lot of recordings to do that. So if I get a mix that I feel like the kick just isn't quite giving you that impact, that's something that's really hard to add back in with any kind of EQ because you always start messing with the bass and the low frequencies of other instruments. And it never really just gives you that punch, but that compressor I found does that. So that's its role in my chain. And everything of mine has its spot for a very specific thing like that. I have a lot of digital plugs and stuff. And that's sort of where I go in for my like surgical changes or real problematic things, any sort of like, if I'm doing like a mid-side EQ to try to fix something, that all really happens in the digital realm for me. What's your gear buying advice to beginners? Would you say specifically for mastering engineers? Sure, let's stick to mastering engineers. So if we were going to say beginner buying mastering gear, everybody wants to reach for something that's really cool and that has a lot of fancy features or is really well known. So like a manly massive passive. We'll say, for example, everybody knows what that is. They know they want it. But I think that what a lot of people make the mistake of is not buying the gear that's going to highlight why the massive passive is so good. And what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, all of your decisions in mastering are based off what you hear. So the most important thing you need to figure out first is your monitoring. And the only way to have good monitoring is to have a good room. So it's like you read it in every audio blog ever, and it's got to be frustrating for beginners, but like you need to get the room right first, or at least decent. And I'm no stranger to working in less than ideal room situations, going through and actually like taking the time to move baffles around, to work with different kinds of bass absorption and whatnot, just to, to get that room feeling right is definitely step one. And then step two is really great speakers that you know really well and that are going to help you achieve what you're looking for. I think... There's no right answer for that for anyone. Mm -hmm. And people always like to argue over this speaker and that speaker. And I think no one takes the time to remember we all hear very differently. Every human does. So it's not like what works for me is going to work for someone else. In fact, Pete famously comes in my room all the time and says, I could never work in here. I have no idea what's going on. So I would say find something that works for you monitor wise. And from there... Honestly, I would start in the box and not try to get too crazy, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with routing analog gear and gain staging and whatnot. 
it's going to be really hard. Like, I think people think if I have a massive passive and I put signal through it, it's just going to make it sound better. But if you start with a mix and you use less than great converters to send that to the massive passive and you don't have a great gain stage to really affect how you hit it, and then you come back in through less than great converters, you might actually find the quality of what you started with is the quality is now worse than what you started with, even though you went through this very expensive piece of gear. So for me, I personally think speakers, monitor situation, then converters, really, if you want to get into the analog world. And then it's, what are you looking for? What is the point of the gear? I think a lot of people think of gear as like a magic bullet. Like, I feel like we sell gear the way a lot of companies sell golf clubs. It's like, <laughs> this will fix your slice and this will whatever. But like, at the end of the day, Tiger Woods doesn't play golf better because of his Nike golf clubs. Like, he's just a better golfer and he uses his clubs as tools to be a great golfer. And I think that people need to approach it from that way instead of looking for silver bullets. They need to practice a lot and listen to a lot of records and really learn their space. And that will help them much more than any piece of gear could. Talk to me about your life outside of audio as far as hobbies, health and exercise, work-life balance. Where do you fall in all that? I am notoriously unhealthy myself. And I should, <laughs> it's, it's bad. I shouldn't be. But yes, you're right. I, you should have a really good healthy lifestyle outside of here. And it would definitely help me if I did. But my hobbies tend to include, I play a ton of poker. Poker has been a huge part of my life ever since I was about 16. And it's kind of funny. That's actually been a huge, a huge part. And that has never gone away. Still play a ton of that, mostly online these days now with COVID. And aside from that, I have an awesome wife who is a legal aid attorney, and she specializes in housing and consumer protection. What's been really fun with someone like her is, like I said before, I really love just like learning things. And she is just an extremely smart and logical person and has taught me how to just be a better thinker a lot in life. So honestly, we spend most of our times just like hanging out and talking and we'll watch like really interesting deep TV shows and talk about them. So that's been a huge part of my life. Other than that, it's mostly just working here in audio and hanging out with friends and family as much as possible. I'm definitely from a really big, positive kind of family situation, and that's always been really important to me. So I sort of extended that here. And other than that, I try to play as much golf and tennis as I can. I try to play a lot of chess. I really like things that keep your brain going. I'm one of those very restless people that can't really sit and not do anything with my brain for a while. That's mostly where I focus my energy is on things like that. How has COVID affected you all there? in terms of business and doing sessions? Luckily, attended mastering sessions have become rarer over time just in general. Mm -hmm. And I think mostly that's because all of a sudden our job is much easier to do over the internet. And I think a lot of people, when they come to mastering rooms, they start to realize there's not a ton of benefit to listening to something in this really different setup than anyone else has on speakers they've never known. And, and I actually would always tell people when we did attended sessions, don't take your first instinct here and think that that's definitely true. If you're a little on the fence about something. Let's take it out of here. Let's go listen to it in somewhere that you know really well. And then we'll decide if it really needs that fixed. So attended sessions started becoming less common. And then when COVID happened, one of the kind of benefits to being a mastering engineer is my job is basically I sit in a room by myself all day. So all of us are still able to do that. We've just structured the studio differently. We don't really have any guests come in. We've all agreed that we're going to be really good outside of the studio. We're only going to be home or here. We're going to wear masks everywhere, that whole thing. And it's been business as usual in the studio. And so far, I feel like more music than ever has actually been made during this time. We have been extremely busy. So I, I think that it's maybe been okay for the creative side of things. And I think you get a very different answer with the live sound people who I just really feel for and can't imagine if that was how you made your living. It's just got to be just so crushing right now. But for us, we've just been super lucky that it hasn't changed, honestly, that much. You've really settled in nicely there in Nashville. It seems like there hasn't been, other than the feeling of snakes in your body and collapsing <laughs> lungs, it doesn't seem like there's been all that many crazy challenges, although I'm sure there has been that we're just not going into too deeply. But how do you handle failures or big issues when they arise in your life? Terribly. I'm not great at that. Honestly, I lean on my wife for a lot of support. She has helped me through some really interesting times. For example, when I was planning on leaving Georgetown, I had a lot of anxiety about that. And she really helped talk me through all of that and get my mind in the right place. For other times, there's been tricky, stressful things. I'm really good under pressure. 
I thrive in that atmosphere where once things get like really crushingly busy, not so much problems, but when there's just a thousand things to do and they all have to be done by 5 p.m., I'm really good at just focusing and pushing through all of that stuff and getting it done. And I think that's been really helpful in me being successful. It has definitely taken a huge toll on my mental health, to be totally honest. Like this job has taught me what anxiety is, taught me what panic attacks are. And so I think you're right. On the outside, it feels very much like I'm in control, but on the inside, it's been hard. So I've been going to therapy and talking through with people all the time, just being more honest and open. I used to be much more closed off and very like introspective about all that stuff. And now I seek help. And that has been really important and really helpful. But I think mostly it's just like talking to people, having people in your lives that can support you is really important because it's a lonely gig, honestly, when you spend all of your time alone in a room. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. Where do you find the challenges? What are the things that cause you panic attacks or stress you out? And where does that stem from? We're going to turn this into a therapy session. No, I appreciate it. <laughs> for me, it's that, honestly, I've been doing this for 12 years and I have mastered thousands and thousands of songs. And every time I hit send on an email to a client, I have a little panic attack and go, that sucks. That sounded like shit. Or, I can't probably say that. That sounded bad. Believe me, you could cuss all you want on this okay. show. <laughs> I'm sure my mom will listen to this. So like, I'm going to keep it down. Oh, okay. But I have that every time. For some reason, building confidence in my abilities. Like if I sit here right now and think about it for a second, I can say to myself, I know what I'm doing. I've done all these songs. People seem to really like them. I've got a great client base, yada, yada. But there's a part of me that every time I hit send, thinks that's the end of my career. Like every time I send a master, like, oh, someone's going to hear that and be like, he doesn't know what he's doing and that's it. I don't really know where that came from. It's been like a slow burn. That was not how I used to be. I couldn't really answer where that comes from, but it's not necessarily great. So it's new for me to like go reach out for help for this stuff. So that's actually what I'm doing now and going to try to figure it out. Do you have a fear of rejection when you send that file to the client? Yes. And I think it's more of a fear in my own abilities. Like, I think all of us who do a job like this, which is like this creative, artistic sort of thing, you never really know if what you did is good or not. If it's what the person's looking for, you can't get inside their head. And I don't know, I take a particular amount of like self-pride in the work that I do. And so it's convincing myself that I know what I'm doing is the hard part. Even though all the evidence seems to suggest that I do, my brain won't let me do that. And the little like fear monster, I call him a little fear monster, comes in and I honestly couldn't tell you. It's a weird thing. You know, I used to get, I wouldn't say I would get panic attacks, but I would stress out when I would send clients mixes in the past. I, I no mm -hmm. longer get that feeling. I feel absolutely confident about stuff. But when I'm mastering something for somebody, my biggest fear is once they've signed off on, on the DDP and I send a DDP, I always think, oh my God, if something got overlooked here, I'm really going to just feel awful if this yep. comes back because some of my clients still do CDs and so when I'm mm -hmm. uploading those DDPs I'm just like please don't screw up oh yeah no I know and I had an experience once I don't even remember who the artist was but there's a CD out there somewhere for an artist that has a Christmas song titled I'll be home from Christmas on it in the CD <laughs> text and that's me that's all me and that was terrible that time in my life was awful I like didn't sleep for four days because actually what happened was is another assistant had noticed and the CDs were already out like, out, like it was an out album. And so I bought one, overnighted from Amazon, didn't sleep that night, put it in the computer, saw that it was wrong and didn't sleep for three days and thought someone's going to find out and I'm going to lose my job and it's going to be this terrible thing. And actually no one ever even noticed. So I'm not even sure anyone knows what CD text is anymore. So no, I totally get it. That is the scariest thing. And that's actually one thing you learn in a major studio too. And a big advantage of, of having a studio is that there's more eyes looking at things, a little more security, and you get to work on so many projects that you get good at it. You learn a lot of methods for quality checking things. And I think that's really important, definitely. Like for me personally, I've noticed that the way I check CD text is I read everything backwards. I go letter for letter backwards across the word. So like if the title of the song was I'll Be Home From Christmas, I would start at the S on Christmas and look at what they wrote look at an S, look at an A, look at an A. And I go letter for letter and I find mistakes much better than if I'm reading the words, my eyes will just correct and mm -hmm. fill in the blanks. So that's like a trick I learned that really helped me become more accurate for things like that. The anxiety associated with sending off anything, whether it's a mix or a master or whatever, is just, I'm sure we all handle it very differently. Oh yeah. One thing that's helped me is working with Pete now, 
doing all the work on the vinyl lathe, when you cut an acetate, like a master lacquer to go off to be manufactured, you can't play it back. So that is literally a master that you have made that you have not listened to. And that's just how it works. And that has actually given me more confidence in the digital side of things because I'm like, oh, well, at least I can listen to it. I can see all the data. I can give it a listen. And that gives me more confidence. And the the vinyl side is just, whoop, here you go. Good luck. And that's always a little bit scary to me still doing that. Well, we're just about out of time. I do have a couple more questions left for you. Are you a saver or a spender? I am a saver for sure. Yeah. Because you said that you don't really have an obsession with gear. So that's probably not a factor that's getting in your way. I'm also scared of change. So when I get something that works really well, I do not touch it until it stops working for me. Yeah. I haven't really changed my gear setup in four years because this is what works and has been doing really well. What constitutes success for you personally? When do you feel successful? My favorite thing in the whole world is, it's funny because it causes all my fear when I send out that master, but the whole point of this for me is when artists get excited about what I've given back to them. The feedback of, this is so great, this is exactly what we wanted. Being able to help someone achieve something that is so like emotionally attached to them and in a positive way for them is just like the greatest feeling in the world. I come from a family of teachers. So like a lot of teachers are in my family. A lot of teachers and a lot of lawyers, it's funny. And one thing I took from the teaching side and that they really put into me is seeing a student understand something for the first time is such a positive experience for me as a teacher. And I get that same kind of feeling when I send something to someone and they are just ecstatic about the way that it sounds and the way it came back. So that is the only success. I don't measure it in terms of dollars. I don't measure in terms of awards or records. I'm just really glad every day that I get to work on music that people enjoy and listen to. And I'm not actually a big goal setter. I probably shouldn't admit that. (laughs) I'm more of a go with the flower. I think that's what poker has really taught me. There's just a lot that's out of your control at all times. You can make all the right decisions and sometimes it just doesn't work out. And so that's helped me deal with loss and things like that really well. And so it's given me more of a perspective of I make decisions in the moment for whatever I think is best for that moment and try to leave big picture out of it. So I would say I've already achieved way more than I ever thought I possibly could, to be honest. So if it all ends tomorrow, I'm totally happy. If it grows and becomes more, that's awesome too. I actually don't even really think of it in terms of that. I feel like I've already been successful just by helping people make their music sound the way they want. That's fantastic. Daniel, this has been great. Thank you so much for making time for me. Absolutely. It's so funny. I don't think I've concentrated so many interviews on one group of people than I have at Infrasonic because I think Pete's been on, Piper's been on, you've been on, Dave's been on. Yeah, you've just got Ray Lynn now and that's it. That's wow. everybody. It's it's like a complete set almost. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And I never thought I'd be here either. Like I said about that goal thing, I mean, it was more just like accidental and I couldn't be happier. The cards all fell into place. As they do in poker for you. As they do in poker. Well, less often than mastering, honestly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Great to speak to you. And where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so infrasonicsound.com is our website. That is where you should try and find me and book me. I actually just realized before coming on here that my own personal website is still live and I don't mean for it to be. So I'm going to have that redirect to Infrasonic. But infrasonicsound.com, you can find my discography there. You can find a contact. There's a, a contact page to get information. And other than that, you can find me on Instagram at infrasonicdan. But that's pretty much all the socials that I do these days, so... Thanks for joining me today. Great to chat with you. And I look forward to a time when I can once again see you in person. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me on. I really had a good time. All right, you take care. Thanks, you too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers, to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. 
Daniel Bacigalupi here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to ask that you stop on by iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. And if you have time, stop on by the Working Class Audio website and take a look around. Other than that, subscribe at your favorite podcast place, whether that's iTunes, Google, Spotify, or one of the many, many choices you have out there. Want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with his lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.